Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today I am going to be talking with David Hurst Thomas. Uh, Dr. Thomas has served as the Curator of Anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History in New York since 1972. And I'm going to let him talk a little bit more uh, uh, share with you his career path and uh, those meaningful experiences that shape the way he thinks about his his career and particularly uh, the importance of museums. But I do I would be remiss, and I'm sure that he would be too. Uh, uh, self-effacing to say that uh, Dr. Thomas has written over 30 books. He's edited 90 uh, volumes. He has authored numerous scientific papers. Uh, he'll, we'll talk a little bit about a book he wrote in, uh, called Skull Wars. And I'd like to say, too, that I uh, became acquainted with, uh, with David through an article that he wrote, actually a book review that he wrote that appeared in Nature magazine. And those of you, my colleagues in the scientific professions, know that Nature Magazine still remains one of the preeminent peer-reviewed journals in uh, the world. And I'm always thrilled when uh, such a scientific journal mentions museums as an important part of the scientific process. Uh, so, David, welcome to the show. And uh I'm very, really looking forward to talking to you about some of the uh, issues related to anthropology, collecting human remains, and uh, their ethical use uh, and uh, storage. So thank you. Welcome to the show. Hi there, Carol. Thanks for having me. So as I do with all of my guests, uh, if you would please just, I think it's always better if you would just share your career path uh, in your own words. And I, I know since we have so many uh, museum professionals uh, who are just entering the field, uh, they're always very interested in hearing those key experiences that have really shaped your thinking about the roles of museums. And since we're going to be uh, talking today about museums as trusted resources, maybe you can focus on that. Okay, I can kick that off. Uh, I'm basically an overgrown Boy Scout. I'm uh, from the West Coast and grew up uh, doing the scouting program, lots of, lots of outdoor activities, lots of leadership training. But I was all set to become an orthopedic surgeon. So I went off and took all my pre-med classes, and they finally explained to me at some point, pre-med's not a major. It's a bunch of science courses. And so I said, okay, and what should I major in? And they say, most people do zoology or chemistry or physics or something because you have a lot of classes. 
Well, as a kid, I was just fascinated with American Indians. And so I started taking more Native American classes and ended up with a major in anthropology, one requirement of which was to go on a Saturday dig. So my first field experience in archaeology was in this wonderful vineyard in the Napa Valley. And I thought, you know, this is a pretty good deal. So at one point, it came to kind of a coin-flipping situation. Do I want to go to medical school, or do I want to get serious about going into anthropology? And at that point, I was working in the old Sacramento archaeological project, and I said, I think I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And I did. So when job time came, I got, I got four degrees at the University of California at Davis. I'm a, I guess I'm a slow learner. And when it finally came time to hit the job market, uh, I was interviewed at City College here in, in New York City. It was my first time east of the Mississippi. And a year later, the job opened at the American Museum of Natural History, and I've been here ever since. Well, what a wonderful place to work. Uh, I have great fond memories of it uh, uh, as as well as a uh, primarily as a as a visitor, and sometimes I got behind the scenes. So that's that's fabulous. So um, and. Your area of expertise, then, I, I assume, continues to be in uh, anthropology related to uh, Native American cultures? That's right. My job title here is Curator of North American Archaeology, uh, and that's, that's what I do, uh, curate our collections and get involved with exhibits uh, about that sort of thing. But I, the, the neat thing about being at a museum like this is over my career, I've been able to average six to seven months a year in the field. And it's a place where the, the academic calendar doesn't interfere uh, with the scientific part of it. So for what I do, it's the best job in the country. That's great. Wonderful. So uh, since you are involved in, um, in Native American uh, uh, cultural research, you're an anthropologist, uh, I'm assuming, actually I know this, so it's a leading question, you have, your research has uh, led to, to uh, investigating human remains, perhaps even collecting human remains, is that correct? Yeah, that's entirely true. Uh, we do a, a number of excavations and excavate lots of different things, caves and rock shelters, and we discovered a Spanish mission. But very often, part of that research extends over into uh, human remains. And uh, that's what has, when I got into the field, it was just assumed that that's something that we did. Pretty much archaeologists like myself coming out of school when I did uh, in the 70s, we were taught that we pretty much own the past. And if any of the American Indians want to know about their past, they should come to us and ask, because we write the books, we give the court testimonies, we do the TV shows. And as a result, we just thought, because anthropologists just thought, that we owned that past and owned that research, and we could call our shots, including as regards human remains. That's what I was taught. Thank you very much. I think that lays a very a perfect groundwork for my next question, which is, uh, and I'm saying this because we also have a, a number of international uh, listeners. I, I just want to put uh, our conversation in context for everyone. And that was in 1999 here in the U.S., the uh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed. Uh, it's it's all usually known by its acronyms uh, NAGPRA uh, 
you and I have talked a little bit. I, I too was was uh, sort of got got uh, was involved in some of those initial discussions, and and so before I give my two cents, just how then given that feeling of anthropologists, and of course you're an anthropologist working in a museum, uh, how. How would you characterize that then the relationship between museums and, and anthropologists sort of when NAGPRA hit? Well, it's got a deep history, and that's, uh, you mentioned my book, Skull Wars, and that, that's part of what we looked at. But if you would, if you would go back 100 years, a little more, anthropologists and American Indians had a pretty good relationship. A number of American Indians went to study with people like Franz Boas, who was the leader of the field at the time. And a series of events happened in the early 20th century that basically, in so many words, told American Indians to butt out of their own history. The first of those was the Antiquities Act that was passed under Teddy Roosevelt, who grew up in these halls, in 1906, which basically meant that in this country... Archaeology belonged to the professionals, not to the people whose ancestors created it. That was kind of a shocker. The second thing that happened got a lot less press, but an anthropologist named Robert Lowy, who was working here at the time and went on to a very distinguished career at the University of California, gave a paper for the American Folklore Society, and the question was, is there real history in American Indian oral history? And Lowy's conclusion was that no. The kind of history and science that anthropologists deal with cannot be grasped by native people. And as a result, science, in order to be objective, can't have the kind of biases that Native American people carry around with them. Therefore, they've got no business in anthropology. So with that as background, that was in the 1920s, 1916, into the 20s, The profession of anthropology grew up, just like I explained about my own background, we owned the past. And when I I was taught, when I ran my first archaeological dig, to keep Indians far away from it. If they come up to your site, lie to them. Explain to them that you're geologists. They have no business. They'll just disrupt your research. Now, as we go through and you get into the Vietnam era, And there's a lot of questioning going on about values. There's questioning about science. There's questioning about uh, minority relations and race and whatnot. And one of those questions that came up in anthropology was raised by Vine Deloria, Jr., who later became quite a good friend of mine. But Vine wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins. And basically, he was asking the hard questions, why is it that these, he called them anthros, are allowed to come out to Indian country in the summer and write their books and make the money and dig up our grandparents, and they can get away with it. And Vine, during the Alcatraz movement uh, in the 1970s, there was a great deal of clamor that ultimately grew and grew through the 80s to where when the first President Bush signed NAGPRA, There was about 20 years of discontent that led up to that, where Native people were rightfully questioning what is the role of museums and of science in dealing with our history. Why don't we own our own past? And that's what NAGPRA was about, is calling museums to task for being part of the greater anthropological effort that wrote 
American Indian people out of their own past. And since that point, we've been on a very different road. It's a shame looking back on it that it took congressional action to actually have the Native American communities and the museum communities sit down and splash this out on a one-to-one basis. It simply wasn't going to happen without some federal uh, intervention. Wow. Uh, it that one of those moments, rare moments that I'm speechless, but, and I I guess I knew that I lived through much of it. My, uh, I was not, uh, I I was, I was a molecular biologist. No one was too terribly interested in the rights of bacteria. So it was an era that, that, uh, that I, I was just ignorant about, uh, and as many things in life, when your ignorance is, you you stumble across your your earlier ignorance, it it leaves you with with a sense of of pain and remorse, but I guess also uh, pride and hope that uh, things can uh, work out, uh, particularly bucking the the uh, the field of science uh, and uh, and making us all a little more. broadened in in our our experience well that road is is littered with these aha moments like Mm -hmm. like you're talking about uh when nagpur was signed almost the same day i got a phone call uh, from robert mccormick adams who was then secretary of the smithsonian and he explained to me they were starting a new museum at the smithsonian called the national museum of the american indian and he asked if I would pretty much be the token white scientist on an Indian-dominated board by law. So I became a trustee of that at the Smithsonian Institution, thinking this Native American community, they must want me there so they can understand what science has to say about their past. I told you how I was raised, Mm -hmm. and I thought this is a great opportunity to educate Indians about where they came from. And as I went through a few board meetings, I discovered not only how irrelevant what I had to say was to Native American communities, but also how angry they were that I even was there to talk about it at all. And it was that aha moment. Uh, you almost use this expression, and it's one that, that Vine, he wrote the, Vine wrote the, Deloria wrote the introduction to Skull Wars. He didn't know much about the science background. But his expression was perfect. He said ignorance was encyclopedic, and it worked both ways. We didn't know anything about each other's world there. That's where Skull Wars came from. That anthropologists had been operating in a vacuum on the premise that they owned the Native American past, and the Native Americans who were there were shocked at what the museums contained and what the scientists had been doing and they didn't know anything about it. So it was a watershed moment all the way around. Unfortunately, it took something like the NAGPRA legislation to get people to sit down and actually talk about these things. And we've been talking about it now for 25 years. Some of those talks have come out quite positive, And some of them, as you can imagine, are, are not so positive. Yes, and I, I th- and uh, I, I want to get into into some of those specific discussions because I th- they're they're interesting. They're very in, instructional as we understand that that there was a moment of 
of of rightness in the in the uh, uh, passing of legislation, also. Uh, the simultaneous development of the uh, National Museum of the American Indian, but we still have a long way to go. before um, we're going to take a, a break here in a couple of minutes, but before we do, just again, you know, one of the interesting things for me as I have have uh, developed this show over the last couple of years, and of course, the the word museum is a very broad, undefined. You know, it's a big tent, which which gives us some strength, but as a result, sometimes I realize that one part of our museum profession maybe doesn't quite understand another part of our museum profession. And so if you could just very briefly ground us uh, that as an anthropologist, not only were you studying uh, these these cultures in, as you said, in sort of your your structured way, and, and, the, and that involved uh, uh, looking at... Um, uh, human remains, but then what did you do with them? And again, it's a leading question. I mean, how did... What did we do with the human remains? Yeah, what did you do with the human remains? We brought them back to the museum and wrote numbers on the bones and put them on the shelves. And that's one was one of the discoveries in the NAGPRA process is that literally hundreds of thousands of human remains exist in natural history museums in this country not strictly Native American, but a lot of them are. And that came as a surprise to a lot of people and a number of senators. On that, we are going to take uh, our first of two breaks. And when we come back, I know you're going to want to hear more from David Hurst Thomas and uh, this this uh, very interesting journey of uh, self-awareness and, and, and total awareness about... Uh, NAGPRA uh, anthropology, the relationship uh, between science and museums and uh, the Native American community. So stay tuned. We will be right back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. 
Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations, no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today I am talking with David Hurst Thomas, who is Curator of Anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History. David has has had a stellar career there and has been able to be part of and observe the shift in uh, the world of anthropology as it relates to the study of Native American cultures uh, and Right. Oh, and I, I must say, too, to those of you who are just joining the, sh- the show, David uh, remind, uh, reminded us that he was also a member of the Board of Trustees, the initial Board of Trustees for the National Museum of the American Indian that uh, was just being developed at about the same time as uh, NAGPRA was uh, signed into legislation in 1990 by uh, the first President Bush. So that sort of brings you up to speed. And right before we went to break, David was uh, had stated that one of the immediate results of NAGPRA was that legislatures and Native Americans and probably a lot of just general citizens learned something most of us didn't know, which was that there were large collections of Native American human remains uh, in museum collections stored very similarly to the way we store dinosaur bones. We put a number on it and we put it on a shelf and some acid-free paper. Uh, So, David, what happened after that? Well, as you can imagine, that 1990 legislation sent some shockwaves through the museum world. Uh, that one of the things that was required is any uh, any museum in this country holding uh, collections, and that was specifically defined, was required to do an inventory and affiliate these remains, if possible, to, to uh, existing tribes and send out uh, notices. So it opened a conversation that was shocking to many people. Uh, not only that there were, as I said, hundreds of thousands of, of human remains locked up in museums, but the stories about how they got there uh, had not really come out publicly before. Uh, it was, the, the book Skull Wars got its name because when in the golden era of museums, which is the late 18th century, when, when the Smithsonian and the Harvard Peabody and this museum, American Museum and the Field Museum and the others were coming into business, anthropologists looked at human history in a different way. There was no separation of variables, so human history was biological history. And the roadmap to understanding the deep history of humanity was in the skulls. 
that had all of the records we needed, we could just piece it together because everything you needed to know came from biology. Now, that's a totally discredited concept in the 20th century, but many of these museum collections were built in the 19th century. So the Skull Wars refers to the competition between museums to go out and get the best collections skull libraries that they could, making them a focus of science. So there was a great deal of competition to the tune of uh, hiring bone collectors to go out and excavate the graves and bring them back to the museum. Now, under the 1990 NAGPRA legislation, each one of these human sets of human remains needs to be analyzed and figure out where did it come from, how did it get here, are there any living descendants and whatnot, and if so, then we need to make it right, and the law explained making it right. Now, that's an enormous project. It's not just for museums. It's an enormous project in Indian country, too, because the federally recognized tribes were required to go through all of this and look at, at the volume of material coming from museums. And as you can imagine, uh, in Indian country, the reactions went from went both extremes. Everything should come back. Nothing should come back. The tribe can't afford this kind of grief. And it's been those conversations over the last quarter century that have characterized that the legacy so far of NAGPRA, and it's still an ongoing story. Let me ask you a... um, It's a naive question, but i got to ask. Is... uh, and remembering that that my scientific background is as, as a molecular biologist so if you can't look at the dna nothing is you know worthwhile and that's my own uh was was my own scientific upbringing and and uh ignorant bias but in 20th century now 21st century anthropology are human remains scientifically valuable or how how scientifically valuable are they now? Yeah, that's one of the key questions. Uh, and it came up in museum discussions all the time because not only did NACPRA, that was a lot of heavy lifting, not just in terms of negative publicity, but in terms of financing. And there was a knee-jerk reaction in some museum circles that what can we tell from these human remains? They're just... They were dug up. They can't tell us uh, anything that we don't already know. Why should we put up a fight at all? Why shouldn't we just get rid of them? The answer to that is there's an extraordinary amount that can and is being done in terms of, uh, we call it bioarchaeology now primarily, but we understand that anthropologists now get it that there are actually three variables here. There's language, and there's culture, and there's what used to be called race that we now call biology, and they're independent variables. And each one needs to be studied differently. So immediately after the passage of NAGPRA, the branch of anthropology, physical anthropology, looked like it was going extinct because of all the negative publicity surrounding human remains. And a lot of graduate students went into some other field Now, that's one of the most exciting growth fields in the country. Where do the forensic people come from who are excavating the cemeteries of these mass slaughters that we see around the world over the last decade? A lot of my students are going to work for countries who are trying to prosecute 
these mass graves. They go in and they're able to do scientific, respectful excavations, very often with the descendant communities involved to identify who ended up, how were they killed, and what can be done in terms of, uh, for the families, and in some cases in terms of prosecution. Forensics, you just have to turn on the TV to see how far that's gone. A lot of that has its roots in physical anthropology and museum science. And at the molecular level, we're learning a great, it's almost impossible to keep up with the, with the studies in the field right now. There's so much going on, not just about who's related to whom and where people came from, but in, in terms of the genetics of disease uh, and a great deal of that. There's one other thing I'll mention here. Uh, there are a number, I talked about the tens, hundreds of thousands of remains, a large proportion of those are still in museums because they cannot be affiliated with modern groups. Either the records are bad or there's just there's not a way to do it. There's a great deal of resistance in some Native American communities to do any kind of study on those remains. However, some tribes are taking exactly the opposite position contributing their own DNA samples and wanting to know a lot more about their past by getting involved with those remains that are still in museums. And this is a key point because when NAGPRA was passed, there were two card-carrying anthropologists, PhD archaeologists, who were Native American. At that point, several of us created a Native American scholarship fund, putting the arm on people like me, hey, you're writing books about uh, American Indian subjects. Why don't you donate the royalties or a chunk of those royalties to a scholarship fund? Because there are some Indian people who would like to become scientists, who would like to go on a dig, who would like to know more about what it is you do. As I said, there were two in 1990. Now there are two to three dozen. And in 10 years from now, there'll be 50 or 60 people who are card-carrying Native Americans and professional anthropologists. And the answer, why is that, is pretty simple. As one explained it to me, we just want to be involved in production of knowledge about ourselves. And the more we look around, the more we're seeing Native involvement all the way around in the collaborative research that's going on. And the open secret here is the more cooperation that Native people feel comfortable with with science, the more we're going to understand about the affiliation of those remains and the more of those remains will be repatriated over the years. We're seeing it already. There's some tribes who are heavily involved in genetic studies of their own past, and as a result, they're able to make a case under NAGPRA that a whole additional set of human remains that before were considered unaffiliated are now affiliated to them, and they can do what they wish with them. Well, and I would say, too, that not only uh, is, uh, not only are Native American communities uh, benefiting from this, as you say, we all, as human beings, want to know where we came from and how we're related to uh, the past and each other, but I would say that that uh, involvement of uh of cultures and groups that uh, heretofore were not involved in uh, the scientific endeavor is helping the scientific endeavor as well, uh, broadening out uh, understanding as well as perspective and being able to ask uh, new and deeper questions. So it seems as if it's, a, as we would say, a win-win for, uh, for everyone. But I have, uh, I have another question. 
Um, yeah, we, I have had several uh, colleagues on this show, primarily uh, from the art world, and we've talked about the term repatriation when it when it has to do with um, artistic materials, uh, um, things from the Parthenon or uh, other materials. Uh, so I just want to make sure that we're clear on our vocabulary when we talk about repatriation of human remains. What, what do you know? What sort of the breadth of what Native American uh, uh, tribes groups do with these things? Do well. The very uh, the, the meaning of repatriation is the the museum community has something that it shouldn't have had to begin with. So, in the recognition of that, then it's up to the tribe. What do you wish to do? Uh, it's yours. And there are any number of solutions. Some tribes simply ask museums to keep them and curate them, maybe under special conditions. We had one case where we'd like a light bulb kept in that that storage space just because we don't want them to feel left alone. There are a number of stories. There are some tribes, many tribes, choose to take back the remains and rebury them uh, in the way that they choose. Some tribes have created, on the West Coast, have created... um, ossuary collections where there are two keys to the door and there's one one case that has 5,000 sets of human remains in it. There are two keys. One key goes to the science community and one key goes to the Native American community and if they can agree that a worthwhile science project has come along, they both turn open their locks and make those collections available. But it's putting the power back in Indian country that was so sorry, uh, so sorry lacking in this old Skull War days. Museums now, and I'll, I'll say, I, I told you that we started out this conversation, there were a lot of Native American people running around museums like this one at the turn of the 20th century. For the reasons that I spelled out, they weren't here in the middle of the 20th century. We now have a number of Native American people in museums like mine every day. Some of it is repatriation. Some of it is collaborative research that's going on with our, with our exhibitions. We have a terrific hall here, our Hall of North American, uh, Northwest Coast Peoples. It was created more than a century ago. France Boas worked on it. Material from British Columbia was collected here, huge canoes and totem poles and whatnot. And it stood there as kind of a anthropological artifact for more than a century. We just two days ago opened a new feature in that hall. It's a digital totem pole. And what it is, is an opportunity for the native groups involved, the First Nations, these are in Canada, to work with us, make films, show people what they're like today, show people what their language sounds like, show people their country. So we now have a digital totem pole standing in the middle of our classic Northwest Coast Hall that's bringing Native voices in, hear the stories that they want you to hear when you're looking at their artifacts. That kind of collaboration is happening more and more between Indian country and the world of museums. I'm glad you brought up exhibition uh, because that was another topic uh, you brought up in your Nature article. Uh, So not only were... uh, do we find these uh, human remains, uh, as well as other many millions of other artifacts? I don't want to uh, leave leave that out. Uh, but we're focusing on human remains today uh, in the museum collection, in the back storage rooms or basements, if you will. But um, I will say one of my earliest museum uh, memories. I was a child, so this was you know 
few years ago, um, was at the Field Museum of Natural History, and it was a collect. It was an exhibition of human skulls from around the world. <laughs> That was one of the big draws for for decades, that anthropologists could have this kind of ghoulish stuff that they could put, and uh, kids would be kind of terrified with it, but also kind of fascinated by it. It was one of the drawing cards of uh, natural history museums for a long time. The question, what does NAGPRA tell us about exhibits like that? And it's a mixed message. The law doesn't specifically have anything to do with exhibiting human remains, should museums do it? Can they do it? Shouldn't they do it? And I think we've gone through that uh, in our halls, and I imagine most large natural history museums have. I believe it's fair to say that right after 1990, when the legislation was passed, there was sort of a universal a feeling of, let's not show any human remains in our halls. We're just asking for trouble. And that was kind of a simplistic solution, I believe, that went on for a decade or so, until we got a little further into it, because there are some groups, particularly in South America, uh, with Peruvian mummies, for example, they want those on display. They display them themselves, and they're very proud of having them on display. Egyptian mummies are another one. So the question, we went back and forth on that, and it was a difficult one, because you want to be sensitive, but you also want to tell the truth in your halls. We had a case, uh, we curated a show on Vikings in America that originated at the Smithsonian, and the opening case as you walk in is this huge cemetery with three dozen Vikings from Greenland block-lifted. They're huge. They've got leg bones that seem like they're four feet long. These are huge people. And the initial reaction from some museum community is, oh, we can't show that. That's human remains. But I was curating that show, and we were working with the six Nordic consulates here in New York, and 201, they insisted on showing that. We're proud of that. We're proud of our Viking heritage, and people need the opportunity to see what a real Viking looks like. So we proceeded with that. And in a a year or two, I'm going to be curating a show on mummies, human mummies, uh, Egyptian and Peruvian, and the kind of science and CT scanning and what we're learning from that because, so the, it, the bottom line is, you deal with descendant stakeholding communities. Some communities don't want their human remains exhibited. And the Natural History Museum ought to respect that and not do it. But some communities do, and some communities feel there's something to be learned, and in fact, something to be proud of in those human remains, and we're going to work with them to show them as well. Thank you. Very, very well said and very, very uh, uh, helpful uh, as we, we begin to continue to look at, at uh, where we exhibit culture, too, which is an, an entirely different uh, discussion, perhaps, than, than today. But uh, before we go on, we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, more with David Hurst Thomas and one of my all-time favorite scientific heroines in the entire world, Margaret Mead. We're going to talk uh, what she 
can teach us uh, today about the importance of museums. So uh, stay tuned. There's a lot more to talk about. Uh, before I we break, though, I want to remind everyone that I love hearing from you uh, by uh, email, uh, carol.bossard at verizon.net, or through Twitter at, at newsright. Uh, tell me what you think about the show. Tell me uh, what topics we should be talking about, and and please suggest uh, great guests. Uh, it is amazing how many wonderful, thoughtful people we have in our broad field, and I uh, am very honored to uh, bring them uh, to your attention and uh, get to know them myself. So uh, thank you again for all of your uh, support in, um, in helping me produce this show. So we'll be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I've been talking today with David Hurst Thomas and having uh, just a, a fabulous, fabulous discussion about the history of anthropology, museums, and Native American cultures and how that has changed over time. Uh, very hopeful story that good things can happen. Uh, there's even in, in moments of unrest and frustration, we, uh, are, we learn from our ignorance, we move forward, and uh, David was sharing with us some fabulous stories about uh, now collaborations 
of uh, from Native American uh, scientists as well as cultures in and and cultures throughout the world in uh, collaborating both on research projects and in exhibitions. But I can't leave um, our discussion today. Uh, every time I think about the American Museum of Natural History, uh, I was uh, fortunate to be able to be there quite often when I worked in Newark. Uh, the uh, curatorials. Uh, staff and collection managers were extremely helpful to a new, brand new minted PhD, first time curator uh, uh, in trying to understand her responsibilities as uh, maintaining a natural history collection. So I was in New York quite a bit and I stumbled across one day a fabulous case of, um, of, of objects, materials, personal effects of one of my great uh, heroes in, in uh, the scientific world was Margaret Mead. Uh, Margaret Mead was uh, a uh, key anthropologist uh, uh, in, in the United States, wa- worked for the American Museum of Natural History for over 50 years, uh, and there's this wonderful case. You can go uh, learn a little bit more about her. I always go and drag all my friends there to say, see, this was really very important, but David... Um, Kidding aside, you also invoked uh, Margaret Mead uh, when you were talking about the ethics of exhibition and her her belief in museums as trusted sources, which is something that we still as museum professionals seem to really hold on to. So could you just uh, share with us the, uh, uh, the, how you quoted her and then your thoughts about how museums either are or can remain or regain that sense of being a trusted human, being a trusted source? Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, All uh, anthropologists, certainly, of of my vintage can remember the first time they ever saw Margaret Mead. Uh, I certainly can. And I'd seen her. She's on the Dick Cavett Show all the time. She was on Johnny Carson. She was the face of anthropology for a good bit of the 20th century. So when I showed up here as the green new uh, North American archaeologist, I was more than a little intimidated by Dr. Mead and made an appointment to, uh, to go up and see her. And uh, we talked about a lot of things, and we, we worked together uh, off and on for six years. Uh, I was chair of the department when she died. But two things kind of stick out in my mind. One is she made a point of saying working in a museum is different. This was the only job she ever had, 50 years. And she said there are a lot of wonderful things, but what we do if we're not careful is mistouch with students. So she had an internship program that she called the Medettes, and these were all women uh, from Barnard, and they came and they worked with her on exhibits, and they went in the field, and they worked on collections, and she said, if you're smart, start a program like this. Well, I was smart enough to listen to Margaret Mead, uh, and over the years, we've had a number of interns come through our program. We're very proud of it, and in the time I've been here, not letting the classroom get in the way of their education has led to 50 doctoral dissertations and MA theses coming out of my lab in a lab that doesn't teach. So that was lesson one from Dr. Mead. The second one, she gave me a, a reprint from her file, and she was a meticulous file keeper. And it was a piece she'd written called Museums in the Emergency. And what she was writing about is there's... Uh, 
she lived, she was writing about a suspicious time where people didn't trust anything, and she said, everybody's suspicious of everything except museums. Why is it, Mead wrote, can people come into the museum and automatically feel happy? And her answer was, it's because museums have a habit of asking, is it true, rather than will this make a hit? And what she went on to say is this place that has museums, and she was challenging me if I'm going to spend my career here, can you keep it a place that people trust, a place where they can come in, in her words, can renew their trust in science and democracy? Now, she wrote those words in 1941, three months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And what she was doing is looking at the role of museums. She didn't know it about World War II, but she became very actively involved in what that, this museum could do during World War II. We look around today at museums, and what we see are the sacking of, of communities and museums by ISIL militants. We see Nimbrud and Palmyra being destroyed because the power of the past is so strong that it needs to evaporate under some ideologies. And we see a world-famous Syrian ar- archaeologist, Khalil al-Hassad, who was literally beheaded by ISIS not that long ago because he few- refused to turn over the keys to his collection. So you can't help but wonder, what was Meade, how would her advice translate into the 21st century? Are we still, are museums a place that you can go and renew your trust in science, in democracy? I'm not so sure. I don't think that much of that is going on right now. I think museums have a great challenge in front of us, in part because museums reflect the time in which we live. But I do see a number of cases in which the biggest museums in this country are reaching out for involvement among the stakeholding communities. I mentioned one example about the digital totem pole. We have other examples where we close one of our halls one day a year so a tribe that has a meteorite that uh, is there that they, they claim is important to their heritage, they need that data come in and bless that meteorite. And we cooperate with that, one of the biggest museums in the world. And I think that's the bottom line to this. As big as everything gets, and as televised and as to the, with the 24-hour news cycle, there's still room for humanity in places like this. And we see it. My profession is, is trying to work something between museum communities and Native American communities. But we just look around. Look at global climate change. We're losing archaeological sites at a record clip. Right now, one of my projects is to work on a Native American cemetery that's going to wash out into the ocean. We worked with the tribes. We explained the problem. We want your blessing. We're going to go in and excavate those remains, which is exactly what we did. And so what I think, and that these are just isolated examples of something that's happening on a much grander scale. It doesn't always work. But what we're finding is museums are becoming much more transparent in their dealings, and it's not enough to have a huge building in a prominent place with major collections. It also comes down to the human level about interacting. Thank you, Dr. Mead. Um, is, uh, I, I, I couldn't 
I couldn't agree more uh, on on several of the points you've made. I think that um, museums uh, have have been in a in a shift. And perhaps we're now seeing the shift back. Uh, certainly there was a, a, a very interesting New York Times article uh, written uh, just this past week about how uh, big money can destroy museums. And we'll probably talk about that on the show here in the n- next month or two. But the idea of in the 90s, uh, uh, large institutions such as the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, uh, but smaller museums and museums who have had not, you know, were brand new. Uh, it was a building boom. Uh, we were building wings. We were building new. Everything was new. Everything was excited. And that building boom has stopped for a variety of reasons. And, and the question, I think, for museums is, so what's next? And David, I think that you, uh, through talking, uh, uh, sharing with us Dr. Mead's um, statements, are helping us see what's next, whether you're a natural history museum or an art museum or, or uh, some other c- kind of cultural museum, that, they, that we have a responsibility, not only to the collections, but truly the communities that we serve. Well, I think you, you hit it right there. Uh, and it's part of what I'm talking about is not just talking with communities, but listening. Uh, when we do archaeology, for example, and we go out to a, a tribal area, some of them question, why do you need to have collections back in New York City? Don't you have enough collections? And so as you work through that conversation, there's a feeling we really want to learn about the artifacts that are lying here on the ground, but we don't want to disturb that. So there's what's, what uh, has been called a catch-and-release program that's coming into archaeology where we can encounter artifacts in the field make our observations on them, and it's just like fly fishing, and then release them back and leave them where they were. Uh, we're listen- we need to listen as much as, as talk when we're dealing with descendant and stakeholder communities. I th- this has been uh, so uplifting. I, I can't help but think, too, that natural history museums really have had to, uh, to play a... Are, are and and should be playing a pivotal role in these discussions about museums in general and our our commitment uh, and our responsibility to communities because for for better or for worse hu- studies of human uh, culture and as you described I mean at the time it was all about biology and now we understand that it's also language and culture but but for right or wrong these cultures were represented in natural history museums as opposed to history museums and I know that there are uh, uh, groups throughout the world that are finding that very disquieting you know why is it that only uh, European uh, history is presented in a history museum but every other culture is presented in a natural history museum well I think you hit on a point because museums like a lot of other things have to be big enough to withstand their own history and We certainly would not agree. I work in a great institution that was founded in 1869. A lot of things have changed since 1869. And rather than just try to cover up our past and just throw some dirt on it and maybe nobody will notice, I think it's a great thing to celebrate our past. Look, 
Why is that, that Native American remains ended up in natural history museums rather than the Metropolitan Museum of Art? David, I'm going to have... David, I'm sorry. I am going to have to cut you short. I was not looking at the time. I was having too much (laughs) fun uh, listening to you. So I want to thank you very, very much uh, for coming on the show today. I learned a great deal, and I feel very, very hopeful on so many fronts. Again, thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. We will be back next week. Thanks, Carol. 